Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from It's Murder, McHugh, written by Jay Flynn. Someone is planning an international incident that would set off a revolution in one of the U.S.'s closest south-of-the-border allies, plus provoke a shooting war between the U.S. and Mexico. And it's up to McHugh, the two-fisted secret agent who always travels with a briefcase containing a fifth of scotch and a forty-five, to stop it. McHugh is built of muscle, brain, and go-to-hell guts, and he answers only to a Pentagon general, who answers only to himself. Now McHugh is in Ajiquic, Mexico. Assignment? Retrieve a couple of AWOL Navy flyboys who have defected to the enemy and stolen a top-secret jet fighter strictly COD. At a hacienda bristling with Tommy guns, an idealistic politician who only wants to conquer Mexico to save it, garnished with an alluring brunette, an incendiary blonde, and a bevy of Russian spies, and you've got McHugh's favorite dish, trouble. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from It's a Murder, McHugh. Chapter 1 McHugh pushed the Polish girl away and went on watching the door of the cantina. He wished Bramhall would show up. It would be even better if Long was with him. That would make his job easier, because he could kill them both at the same time. He was quite sure it would have to be that way. Bramhall and Long wouldn't return to the States on their own, and the situation was too sticky to go through normal extradition channels with the Mexican government. If it had been that easy, General Burton Hartz wouldn't have sent McHugh. A clerk at the embassy could have handled it. They could both be dead already. We're certainly supposed to think they are, Hartz had said on the scrambler phone. But our sources in Mexico think something is going on down there, and a couple of Americanos that could be them may be involved. Okay, I'll go have a look. Fix up a cover for yourself, and be careful. You know we won't be able to help you much, McHugh. Those Mex jails are pretty bad. I've seen them. When and if you find them, you know what you have to do. I know. One thing. Make sure they talk first. We'd like to know why they did this. Check. McHugh had broken the connection, locked the phone in its safe, and watched the fog curtain ooze through the cables of the Golden Gate Bridge while he thought about the disappearances of Nate Bramhall and Donald Long, both lieutenants in a jet squadron based at Moffett Field in Sunnyvale. A month earlier, Bramhall's plane had vanished during a routine training flight. He had last reported by radio from a point over the southern San Joaquin Valley. A week after that, the highway patrol had found Long's convertible parked in a ghost town in the Mojave Desert. Long's clothes were in it, there was gas in the tank, and there was no sign of foul play. Naval intelligence and the FBI had investigated without finding anything conclusive. Both officers had bank accounts, which were intact. All their clothing was accounted for. Neither had had any trouble with civil or military authorities, and there were no indications of personal difficulties. Long was a bachelor. Bramhall had a lean blonde wife, Peggy, age 35, which made her two years older than her husband. Long had a mistress, however, Peggy Bramhall. There was reason to believe that Bramhall knew of the situation and tolerated it. Three days after Long had dropped from sight, and while an air and ground search was still underway for the supersonic fighter Bramhall had been flying, 
Peggy Bramhall had crossed the border into Mexico at Nogales, Arizona. Going through the record jackets of the two flyers, McHugh had found one item that interested him. Bramhall had been passed over for promotion within the year because his wife had once been a member of an organization that was on the Attorney General's subversive list. Traveling by car, Peggy Bramhall had been traced as far as Guadalajara, nearly 1,200 miles below the border. The three-year-old Ford had been left in the airport parking lot there. Peggy had vanished as completely as her husband and lover. Another of the swift, drenching tropical storms that sweep across southern Mexico in summer boiled down Lake Chapala. McHugh eyed the glass, in which quick-melting ice was rapidly diluting tequila, then scowled as the door opened. There was enough light from inside the bar so he could see the thick raindrops splattering on the unpaved side street in Ajijic. The pair who had come in pushed through the crowd to the bar. They were in vogue. The one in front had carefully waved hair, a roll to his hips, and silver nail polish. His companion was bearded and his shirt was open at the top, showing a mat of dark hair on his chest. They were waving to others in the bar. The boy in front looked at McHugh. Something he saw in the eyes evidently disturbed him, because he turned away and whispered to his companion. McHugh turned the eyes on the Polish girl again. They were light, clear brown, maple syrup eyes. The girl shrugged. She was a big girl with light skin, jet black hair, and a fine bone structure to her face. She wore a peasant blouse that dipped low over big, firm breasts, and a flaring skirt belted around a small waist. Artist, writers, they are not like you, McHugh. Artists who couldn't paint a rose on the side of a thunder mug, McHugh snorted. Writers who couldn't write home for money. You know what's wrong? Most of them come here and put on a hell of a show for the natives. He drained his glass, saw that hers was empty too, and called over the clatter of voices to the barkeep. Dos mas tequila, por favor. Her name was Amelia, and she was broke. McHugh had found her in the bar three days earlier and made a deal, because she had been around Ajizic since winter, and knew who was who and, more important, what their price was. He fed her, bought her clothes, and paid up the back rent on her room at the Posada. When his job was done, he would give her a plane ticket back to the States. She wasn't required to sleep with him. She did it because she felt like it. The fresh drinks came, and McHugh counted out pesos from the pile on the table. Why do you care, McHugh? she said. She sipped her drink and watched him with dark eyes. He shrugged heavy shoulders and ran thick fingers across close-cut black hair that was graying. I don't, really. I guess I don't like Mexico in the summer. Good Lord, who does? Then why stay? I know you don't. Business, he said curtly. She leaned across the table and her fingers brushed across the sleeve of his seersucker jacket. What is your business, McHugh? Nose trouble? No, I don't care. Unless you get me in trouble with the authorities. I'm past due on my tourist card now. She swirled the ice in her glass. You're getting talked about in your village. So? You're being watched. The police and others. I expect that. I'm legal. Nobody's legal in a place like this. Okay. I could be on the dodge for my wife. You wouldn't have a wife. Men like you don't need wives. She got a cigarette going. There are too many like me around. McHugh smiled with the wide mouth. 
This big Slavic girl was working out fine. She'd been around enough to think she knew what was going on in the world. She wouldn't be able to keep her mouth shut. She had a brain that would be no strain at all for even an inept agent to pick. I guess you might say I'm in the war business. I deal in trouble. For a price. He smiled ruefully. It's a shame so few people have a price nowadays. They talk about their great causes, about ending oppression of the masses. They should talk dollars. A soldier of fortune. Nuts. I'm a professional military strategist. The guys writers call soldiers of fortune were mostly hoods who found it too hot at home and had to go on an international basis. He chuckled. You can't hardly find them kind no more. She looked around the barroom. I don't know. A lot of men from around here went to Cuba. They laughed and joked and tried to say it was because there was nothing else to do. But it was really a cause. Suckers, most of them, with a few liars thrown in to keep the suckers convinced. He shook his head. Cuba traded a devil it knew for a devil it didn't know. That's usually the way these things go. Amelia shrugged. You expect a war here, McHugh? He leaned across the table and kept his voice low. Tell you something, honey. When there isn't a war on, I run a saloon. It's in San Francisco and is called The Door. You can hear a lot of interesting stuff working behind the plank there. Like somebody buying up a lot of war surplus rifles and ammo and medical supplies and hiring a flying bum at a thousand bucks a day to drop them in the right places. Like how a man can get a job if he knows all the fast and dirty ways of fighting and can teach them and maybe lead the men he's taught. Like how the price of obsolete fighter planes and light bombers has doubled in a month. Understand? But where will this all happen? I don't know. Mexico, maybe. But Mexico's pretty big for a revolution the way they run them nowadays. And Uncle would step in fast. I'd say Panama or Guatemala. Anyway, it looks big enough for me to take a piece of. She mashed her cigarette out. McHugh, this kind of talk frightens me. Why? Listen, kid, I just told you this so you'd know what was going on and keep out of trouble. Keep your mouth shut and you'll be all right. All, all right. She put a fresh cigarette between the deep red lips, and he held a match to it. Would you mind if I went back to the room? I'm nervous now. Sure, I'll be along later. Pick up a bottle of rum on the way. She nodded, got up, and left. He watched heads turn as she pulled a plastic rain cape across her shoulders and paused momentarily at the door before stepping into the street. It looked as though the rain had stopped. The bar was damp and smelled of sweat and drying clothes and old liquor. A man who looked like a Mexican but could have been a mulatto was hammering on the piano in the corner. Nobody paid any attention to the sound. The boy with the waved hair and silver nails was pouting at his bearded friend. The beard laughed and got its face slapped. The other boy strode from the bar with an indignant roll of the hips. A few people laughed. McHugh finished his drink and wrapped the glass against the table for a refill. The customers were beginning to thin out. It was past midnight, time for the wild parties to begin. He wondered whether he was wasting his time in Ajizik. He had come there on a hunch, largely because it was populated with so many offbeat characters and it was only a few miles from Guadalajara. Ten years earlier, it had been fine, a small fishing village on the north shore of the Big Lake. Since then, it had been taken over by the arty types. Nobody gave a damn about them, so they could be bohemian as hell, and do it on a hundred bucks a month. 
That would be gone in the first week or so, and from then on they'd drink on the cuff or attach themselves to the Americano tourists who had heard about the strange breeds of cats to be seen. The piano player gave up and went and sat at the bar. He peeled the label from a bottle of Carta Blanca and drank from the neck. Consuelo Hernandez brought McHugh's drink. She was the barmaid, a travel poster Mexican with olive complexion, black eyes set deep and wide over high cheekbones, vivid lips, and a full beaded skirt that swirled when she walked. She wore a thin, off-the-shoulder blouse with nothing under it. McHugh looked at the silhouette of her young breasts and motioned her to sit down. Drink, senora? She showed him white teeth and murmured, Gracias. When she came back with a straight shot of tequila and a wedge of lime, McHugh asked, Heard from Dolores yet? They had arrived before dawn. She popped the lime into her mouth, bit into it, tossed off the shot of tequila. Who is this mysterious man of my sister's? Bud Chapman, a flyer, a good one. I know. I have seen him come here to the lake in the black airplane that floats. And that is all I know. She tossed her dark hair. Dolores says he is good to her. So what do I care? This man is a friend of yours, McHugh? An old friend. We were in the war together. McHugh began to feel less frustrated. When Chapman got in, they could at least use the amphibian's radio to contact Hartz. McHugh did not trust the males and wouldn't have used the Mexican telephones for anything more secret than ordering a bottle of liquor. Hartz had decided to send Chapman in, both to backstop McHugh and because, if somebody had made a hot offer to Bramhall and Long, the same somebody might approach another pilot, particularly one with a shady reputation, and Chapman's woman had this sister who was a barmaid in the town. The word that they were on the way had been passed through Consuelo. McHugh raised his eyes as a woman came into the bar. She was tall and slender, with black hair rolled in a bun on the back of her head. He took in the skin-tight toreador pants, the blouse open too far at the front, the brightly enameled fingernails, and thought, tourist. Consuelo curled her upper lip in disdain and muttered, Puta! The woman stood at the end of the bar, and McHugh heard her order something with rum in it. She was vaguely familiar, but he wasn't sure he hadn't seen her around the village before. In the States it is the custom for women to come into bars looking like that, he said. Alone? Consuelo demanded. Alone. Then I think their purpose is not to be alone when they leave. McHugh smiled without looking at her. When the eyes of the woman at the bar turned to him, he realized he had been staring. In that moment he was sure he knew her. Peggy Bramhall had changed the color of her hair and its style, but she could not change the tall, lean figure or the thin length of her nose. McHugh had seen only one photograph of her, a passport shot taken three or four years before. This was a break, he thought. If anyone could lead him to the missing flyers, Peggy should be able to do it. Hasta mañana, senora, he muttered as he shoved his chair back. Consuelo's eyes were incredulous as he went to the bar, stood beside the woman and said, Hi, good to see someone from home. She watched him with steady gray eyes and the trace of a smile on her mouth. McHugh considered her only passably good-looking. You don't know me, but you're an American, and it's not good for American women to be in places like this so late without an escort, he said. Oh? She fitted a king-sized cigarette into a silver holder and studied his face while he held a light. I think I'll be safe enough, Mr. McHugh. He signaled for a drink from San Francisco. 
I feel quite safe, Mr. McHugh. She drained her glass. I'd like to buy you one, Miss. Thank you? No. She reached for the small purse beside her and pushed some peso notes across the bar. Perhaps some other time. Good night. McHugh debated with himself what to do as the street door swung shut behind her. He wondered whether he'd frightened her, then decided she wasn't a woman to frighten easily. No, she was just being damned coyote about who she talked to. He had two choices, follow her now, or wait and see where and when she showed up again. He would have to do it himself. If he tried to hire natives to keep an eye out, word would get back to her immediately. Bramhall and Long would either take off like scalded cats or dig deeper into whatever hole they were using now. McHugh walked out of the bar into the steaming tropical night. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from It's Murder, McHugh. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.